Good morning, Redemption. My name is Tim Morrow. I'm a member here. Today's reading is going to be from Colossians 2, 1 through 3. That's found on page 983 in your pew Bibles, if you need one. And while we're going to be studying Proverbs, this passage is going to be reminding us each week that ultimately God's uh, riches of wisdom and knowledge are found ultimately in Christ. So read with me, if you will, Colossians 2, 1 through 3. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Tim. Morning, church. Let's, let's pray as we look to God's word today. Father, help us to use one of the most powerful abilities that we have as, as your human beings made in your image, God. The ability to speak. Help us to use that ability to glorify you above all. Use these words that we will look at today from Proverbs to help us, to shape us, more than that, to guide our tongues, Lord, so that what we speak will, will be healing, restorative, that the fruit of our lips will be pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we said today, we're going to begin a new series in the book of Proverbs, and the book of Proverbs is, is a very unique book in the canon of Scripture. And so this series is going to work and it's going to look a little bit different than a typical expository series where we just march through a book. Uh, many people love the book of Proverbs because it's easily one of the most pithy and practical books of the Bible. Uh, for the most part, it is just a collection of instructions and sayings that have just a very immediate and real relevance to anyone's life as soon as you read them. Now, historically, the book of Proverbs has been attributed to Solomon, Israel's great king who famously asked God for wisdom above all things. And so we should understand him to be the primary author at work here. Uh, whether he penned each proverb himself or simply collected the wisdom sayings that were orally passed down through the Israel history of Israel, uh, it's not entirely clear, probably some combination of, the, of both. Uh, but even based on the headings in the book, uh, we can see it's clear that what we have today as the book of Proverbs was compiled and edited by various scribes within the nation of Israel throughout its history. For example, in chapter 25, it reads, these also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied, right? So we're basically reading the ancient wisdom of God's Old Testament people, the nation of Israel. As one scholar points out, wisdom in the Jewish conception comes from God. This is one of the most important things we will see throughout this book. We read early in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is this spiritual thing that comes from God and he describes, hence, 
focuses on the capacity for moral discernment issuing in wise choices. In other words, the point of wisdom is to learn the ways that God intended our life to be lived, and then not only there, not to stop short of actually living in that way. Proverbs, in particular, they almost assume a call to action. Everything we read in Proverbs is meant to be and demands really to be obeyed, not just read, uh, not just understood, but actually lived out. Now, like all wisdom, these Proverbs are not just meant to be common sense. They're not common sense. In many ways, wisdom is incredibly uncommon, actually. The point is, we often don't live in these ways on our own, naturally, uh, but as a general rule, our lives would be much better uh, and certainly more God-honoring if we did. Now, the book of Proverbs itself is, can be divided at least into two parts. Uh, chapters 1 to 9 is clearly a unit unto itself. And it contains instructions from a father figure to his son, and it has other poetic characters involved, like Lady Wisdom, who's meant to personify wisdom, and Lady Folly, who personifies folly. Now, someday we may do a separate series even through these first nine chapters of the book. For this series, uh, we are primarily at least going to focus on the rest of the book, that is chapters 10 to 31, which are filled with what you probably think of when you think of a proverb. These chapters are filled with collections of brief and, and sometimes even often unrelated, seemingly unrelated sayings. Uh, and each of these sayings usually even can be broken into two parts. Usually each proverb describes something negative or foolish and then contrasts that picture in some sort of artful way with something positive or wise. But as you read through the book of Proverbs, it's hard to miss, there are a number of themes. You might even say life categories that begin to rise to the surface. Things like work, money, self-understanding or, or identity, conflict, for instance, hardship, trials. Many of these things are addressed over and over again throughout the book. And so each week, uh, we will be looking at a number of Proverbs that each speak to one of these life categories to better understand God's wisdom in that area. How can we approach this or that in the ways that God intends? How can we avoid the push and pull towards foolishness in these areas? And what does all this wisdom have to do with Christ? One of the most important questions we'll consider, and as Tim did a great job explaining, each week we're going to read that passage from Colossians 2, a series we did not long ago that reminds us that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. It's going to be important for us to see that, to remember that, and to apply these passages with the grace of the gospel in mind. How did Christ approach these aspects of his life? How should that change the way that we seek after this kind of wisdom? And so today, we are going to look at God's wisdom for our words. Now, Christians of all people should understand the power and appreciate the power of words. In Genesis chapter 1, we're talking just three verses 
into the Bible, before we know anything else about the God of the Bible, one of the very first things we ever learn about him is that he speaks. Verse 3 of chapter 1 in Genesis, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. The all-knowing, all-powerful creator God speaks. And when he speaks, incredible things happen. Everything we've ever known, everything we've ever experienced or appreciated in life was created by the power of words. That is God's word. And so before anything else is said about the power of words in our lives, we need to understand just how central words are to the story of God throughout the scriptures. We worship a God who speaks. This is, I think, one big aspect of what it means to be made in the image of this God. Unlike any other creature on earth, in all of creation, we, like God, have the ability to think and reason and even speak. Uh, Christ himself, our Lord, we read, is the word of God made flesh. Christianity is what I like to call a literary faith. It is a faith that revolves around words. This God has inspired for us in his word, the, the writings of Scripture, the Bible, which is compiled of words. Each week when we gather, we gather around God's word. After Tim just read Colossians 2, he said, this is God's word for us today. We do this every week. We respond with our words. Thanks be to God. The centerpiece of our church's life and ministry is biblical, most often expository preaching. Um, for the next 30, 35 minutes or so, I will be up here making various noises with my mouth. Uh, those noises will reverberate through this microphone out of that speaker's there. They will bounce around this room and make their way to your ears. All the while, your brain will be parsing these various noises that I make with my mouth into words. Depending on the noises I choose to make with my mouth, the words I choose to use, you may leave today either encouraged and built up or down and depressed, hopefully not, but possibly bored. <laughs> words are incredibly important, especially for the Christian. And in particular, the Proverbs we read today are going to call us to use our words to bring healing and life rather than violence and death. This is, I trust, a, a, a good summary even of God's wisdom for our words in Proverbs. We're going to discover three ways to be wise with our words, three things we can do to harness the power of the tongue for good. The first is this, we need to choose our words very carefully. Choose our words very carefully. Let's look together at Proverbs 12, 18. It reads this. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Notice again, wisdom here is being contrasted with folly. This is very typical in Proverbs. And in particular, foolish talk is compared with sword thrusts. 
It's, it's compared with an act of violence that's meant to kill or at least harm someone. And wise speech is being compared to physical healing. The tongue of the wise, it says, brings healing. But before we get to the outcome of our words, I think it's actually really important we notice something here. According to Proverbs 12, 18, what kind of words are like sword thrusts? Foolish words, yes, but what, what kind of foolish words? Do you see it? It's rash words. Now, to be rash is to be careless or hasty. In this case, it means to speak too quickly without much thought. And when we speak in this way rashly, uh, our words tend to be violent. They tend to be hurtful, like sword thrusts. Uh, as Exhibit A, I'd like to present you with a very embarrassing email from the deep, dark corners of my Gmail account. Uh, first, a little backstory. Uh, long story short, about 10 years ago, just before Carrie and I were getting ready to close on the purchase of our first home in Racine, our loan officer ran my credit report one last time just to finalize everything. And it turns out, uh, earlier that year, I just moved back from college uh, to, to Racine, and I forgot to forward my mailing address. And so AT&T had been trying to get a hold of me for a number of months to finish out that last bill. Something got lost between the cracks there, uh, but I never got any of their bills and letters. And just before we were about to close on our house, they sent me to collections, which was great. Uh, here's the best part. The overdue balance was a whopping $95, okay? Uh, but as a result of this change in my, in my credit score at the very last minute, our interest rate went up a full percentage point. Now, if you don't know how a loan works, basically over a 30-year loan, that translates to $10,000. So a late AT&T payment was about to cost us $10,000. At least that's how I thought of it. And as a young first-time homebuyer, naturally, I panicked. I panicked, and I also uh, actually called one of the credit unions, and they told me they could see my credit scores, and they actually weren't that low, and they said, actually, they've never been that low before. So there was lots of confusion here. Uh, the stakes were very high. We're just a couple days away from closing, and so I rushed to my computer. I draft a rash email to my mortgage lender, and I typically don't delete emails, and so I looked that email up. Here's the subject line. We need to talk immediately. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I went on to explain this situation in the most urgent and accusatory terms possible. And listen, this is really embarrassing for me to share, but it's a perfect example of Proverbs 12, 18. And so here's how I ended that email. I said, I demand that you give me your manager's number. All trust just went out the window. Fix this. <laughs> oh boy there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts it's me I did not take a deep breath I didn't step back and reflect I didn't talk it through with anyone I just fired off a rash condemning email I used my words like a sword to punish. And in the end, I have to say 10 years later, I, I don't even remember how it all worked out. I really don't, but it did. By the time we closed, we felt confident this was a fair, reasonable deal, but not 
before I made an absolute fool of myself. The great Christian theologian John Calvin so eloquently once wrote, I consider looseness with words no less of a defect than looseness of the bowels. Just let that word picture speak for itself. Um, As simple as it may seem, the old adage is true, right? Think before you speak. If we want to be wise with our words, we need to be thoughtful with our minds. We need to choose our words carefully. Part of choosing our words carefully, I think, also involves being selective with what we even choose to say at all. Uh, We should not just let words pour out of our mouths like water bursting from a broken dam. Proverbs 10, 19 says it this way, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. To restrain means to stop something from happening when it easily, you, it easily could. <laughs> Trying not to do something that would otherwise just happen. Wise people think many things that never come out of their mouth. They try to say less in order to speak with more wisdom when they do speak. But in our culture, Uh, We don't really value things like thoughtfulness, reflection, and restraint in our communication, do we? Those don't seem to be sort of vogue today. Uh, We value spontaneity. Uh, Our heroes are often the people who throw their words around like wrecking balls. We we love this. We love witty one-liners and biting comebacks. We celebrate people who just sort of tell it like it is, we say. And I worry that we've lost the art of thoughtful, deliberate speech in the interest of entertaining or enticing speech. We're we're rash people, all all often too busy, too important, swept up with a million other unnecessary distractions. And as a result, we are far less self-reflective than ever before. We rarely slow down and think we just talk. Proverbs 18.2 says this, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. See, that fools, they don't take the time to understand or know the truth, right? They don't have time for that. More than anything, even more than being right, even more than understanding what is good and true, a fool wants to be heard. Meanwhile, James 1.19 calls us to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. There's so many of us so often We need to slow down and probably, in most cases, say less. Now, as a preacher and pastor, I have to tell you, I'm often convicted by this. I spend so much of my time writing and speaking words, sending emails. It can easily just become a default just to talk and speak and say If you want something to pray for, as I grow and mature as as a man and a pastor, pray that I would learn when to just say nothing, when to listen, that that would become more so even the default for me. If you know someone like this, someone who is truly quick to listen, slow to speak, you know how life-giving it really 
is. It is. More and more, this is the kind of pastor I want to be. But what about you? Are you a rash talker? Do you bounce from one conversation to the next without much thought to what you say or why you say it first? We need to choose our words carefully. Be less rash, less reactionary. And as a helpful guide for choosing our words carefully, the second thing we can do is this. Let's use our words for the good of others. Use our words for the good of others. Let's look again at Proverbs 12, 18. It says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And then also, next, Proverbs 18.21 as well. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Notice, both of these verses suggest that the words we use either are instruments of life and healing or they are instruments of death and violence. With them, we can thrust swords into our hearers to kill them, or we can give them life and healing. And so one important measure of wisdom in our speech is always simply this. What purpose do our words serve in the lives of others? Are they meant to help and serve others, or are they meant to kind of in a way hurt or put them down in order to serve us? Generally speaking, The more biting and harsh our words are, the more foolish they are. And the more loving and restorative our words are, the more wise they are. That that is generally true, and yet there is also an error to be avoided here. Uh, It's tempting to assume that no matter what, as long as we're being nice, we're being wise. As long as we smile, we look people in the eyes, we give them a genuine sense that we really care well, then no matter what we say, it's automatically wise. This is just simply not true. Notice in these passages, niceness is not necessarily the measure of wisdom. Healing and life, however, are a measure of wisdom. In other words, not necessarily the feeling that our words produce in people, but the purpose our words serve for those people. It is entirely possible to say very foolish things in an incredibly nice way. The opposite is true as well. At times, strong words are necessary and very helpful. I do think I should say that with caution here because it's very easy and unfortunately common to be drawn to strong words for the wrong reasons, but even still, they can be used to bring life and healing to others. Just consider the life of Jesus, for instance. Jesus is the personification of wisdom. All wisdom and knowledge are found in him. And yet, if you simply read through one of the Gospels, you will see his words. They're never obscene. They're never vulgar, of course. But at times, he does use strong words. He calls religious leaders of his day brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs. I don't think there's any way around that. That's an insult. Uh, He said that he came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword and even is willing to divide members of a household against one another in order for them to respond appropriately to him. Uh, When some people rejected him and turned away because they couldn't handle his teaching, he turned to the rest of them and he said, does anyone else want to go? Right? 
So Jesus is not always what most would consider nice. It's, it, unfortunately, it's just not that simple. I wish it was that simple. It's not. But there is one thing Jesus never does with his words. He never uses his words to ruin people. Even when he uses strong words, he does it for the sake of that other person's good. He does it to protect them or to rebuke them for a dangerous sin that will lead them down a dark path. He never plays politics. He never manipulates situations to tear people down or to somehow seek his own advantage. His words don't always make people feel good, but they are always intended to do them good. Even when that good is is unpopular or very difficult. And this is the key. What purpose do our words serve in the life of others? When we open our mouths to speak, what is it we're trying to get done? The point here is not just be nice or say happy things. The real point is use your words for the good of others. Now, as a general rule, using our words for the good of others also means that we should not use our words to serve and promote ourselves. So in in chapter 27, verse 2 of Proverbs, we read this, Let another praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. For example, uh, we should not be in the habit of telling other people all of our extensive experience in life and how qualified we are to weigh in on this particular topic or to play this role in the life and ministry of our church. Listen, let someone else do that for you, right, is the idea. And if if there's no one there to do that, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's better for others to know nothing praiseworthy about us at all than for us to insist on our own praiseworthiness. Now, this may all sound really complicated to you as we think about this. Okay, so wait, I'm supposed to say what, when, and I'm not supposed to say what, to who, <laughs> why? But the truth is, if we want to be wise with our words, we should not obsess over what to say, when, and how. Instead, we should focus on the good of others. And then wise words will come far more naturally to us. Let's ask ourselves, how can I bless this person in what I'm about to say? How can I use my words to bring them healing and restoration in their lives? In what ways am I tempted to seek my own advantage instead of theirs? Here's, I think, a good litmus test for us for wanting to try and figure out how we're doing here. The question I would have is, how are you at giving criticism to other people? How do you tend to do with that? Sometimes it's really hard to do. Often it's so hard to do, we just don't do it at all. This is especially important for us in the church. We are called in Scripture to rebuke and to correct one another in love with a spirit of gentleness, but we can also fall prey to a dangerous, unhealthy obsession with correcting others, where instead of being motivated by love, we are motivated over and over by a cynical and self-righteous heart. We love to sit above people, sort of observe them from the outside, point out all their flaws and their failures. It makes us feel wise. It makes us feel important. Um, I I noticed this failure of yours. You could have done this way better. Uh, And by pointing it out in the most grave and intense way possible, I'm going to show you how wise I am, especially compared to you. Right? 
We can use our words almost to accentuate the errors of others. We turn up the volume and the intensity of our correction, of our concern, so that we look wise by comparison. Church, where we hear this kind of correction, this kind of talk, we need to think, fool. This is how a fool corrects and gives criticism. One mark of a truly wise person is that they give gentle, restorative criticism. They're not out to humiliate or expose anyone. Even in hard conversations, their words bring life and healing. And so church, let's, let's grow together in this direction. Uh, let's speak with one another's good in mind. Before we criticize, let's consider whether our words will be helpful or just hurtful to the ones who hear. Now some of you, I'm sure, are anticipating a very difficult conversation in the near future even. Remember, the tongue of the wise brings healing. Before you send that email or make that phone call, walk into that meeting or voice that criticism, ask yourself, am I really seeking this person's good? What I'm about to say, is it going to bring them life and healing or is something else happening here? Uh, First, we need to choose our words carefully. Second, we need to use them for the good of others, not for ourselves. And finally, we always need to respect the power of words. Look again with me at Proverbs 18.21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Apparently, Talk is not cheap. (laughs) There is nothing more valuable than life itself, nothing more costly than death, and both of them, death and life, are in the power of the tongue. Talk is not cheap. It's powerful. It's costly, and we must respect that. Those who love the power of the tongue will eat its fruits. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it means there are two powers of the tongue that we can love, right? We can love the deadly power of the tongue, or we can love its life-giving power. And depending on which of these powers we do love, we will eat. That is, we will fill ourselves up with the kinds of words that match our affection. If we love the violent and deadly power of the tongue, we will crave and devour violent and deadly words, and those words will reap a harvest of violence and death in our lives and the lives of others. On the other hand, if we love the healing and life-giving power of the tongue, then we will crave and devour healthy, life-giving words, and those words will reap a harvest of righteousness and eternal life in us and the lives of those around us. See, we are constantly taking words in and putting words out, and in both cases, those words are either producing life in us or they are producing death in us. So we need to respect the power that words have on us. We also need to respect the power that our words have on others. Let's talk about that, Uh, the first one rather. What effect do words have on us when we take them in? Everywhere we turn, we are constantly surrounded and bombarded by messages, words that are designed to stir our affections and to shape our identities. And so what 
affection-shaping, identity-stirring words are you eating on a regular basis? What kind of podcasts do you listen to? What kind of blogs or news sources do you frequent? What kind of books or magazines are you drawn to? What kind of YouTube channels are you subscribed to? And most importantly, why? Why are you respecting the power that those words have in your life? I talk with pastors about this, especially over the last few years. A lot of pastors have dealt with this in the life of churches, but as an example here, if we make it to church maybe half the time, we serve half the time we are here, we maybe catch fragments of each book or series that we work through, but we're not really engaged in God's word with the, in the life of our church. But then at the very same time, we are religiously listening to three, four, maybe more hours of political podcasts a week that are all designed to get our focuses on all the most complicated issues of our day, to, to, to reinforce our political leanings, and to cast suspicion on everyone who disagrees with us. If that's our diet here, well, we should not be surprised when all of a sudden, you know, we just have a real hard time connecting with people in our church. Uh, they, they, don't just, they just don't seem like-minded anymore, right? And then maybe around election season, 24 is coming up, we start to think, I don't know, maybe I, just, maybe I need a different church that fits and works better. The words we take in really matter. They really do have a spiritual effect on us. It's important for us to respect this. This is very simple, and you're probably going to expect me to say something like this, but it's true. We will never live wise, God-honoring lives unless the words of this book, unless the words of Scripture have more influence on us than any other words. So does our weekly word intake reflect that? We need to respect the power words have on us. We also need to respect the power our words have on others. That is, uh, we can't just post whatever we want on social media as if it doesn't matter and won't have any influence in our lives or change anything. It will. It absolutely does change our relationships. Uh, Parents, this is hard and often convicting. We can't just lash out at our kids as if it won't have any lasting impact on our relationship. Uh, In my experience, this is where a good, godly wife really comes in handy. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, Carrie told me, hey, it seems like you've you've been a bit more harsh and quick-tempered with the kids lately. I think you need to consider that, right? Husbands, I hope your wives feel free to tell you something like that. Uh, And when they do, I hope that we all rejoice and praise God for it. This is such a healthy thing. We need this. In my case there that week, my words were growing more strong and deadly. Carrie's words, on the other hand, to me, brought life and healing. They're probably hard to say. It's not an easy thing to say, but they opened my eyes to sin in my own heart that for some reason I just, I just wasn't seeing. I was rashly speaking like a sword thrust. She helped me to respect the power of my words. Now, she easily could have just commiserated with me, right? Oh, these kids, right? You're such a pain lately. What's the deal? And, and if she had done that, chances are I would have spun further and further into my tailspin of harsh and deadly words, and I would have brought her right along with me. Listen, 
Beware of this in the life of our church. Beware. When one member voices their frustration or disappointment with you about another member, for example, how you respond really matters. It really matters. We can respond with wisdom, encouraging that person to choose their words carefully, to consider the interests of that person they're talking about, right? Or we can respond like fools, rashly validating every feeling they express, letting harsh, damaging words pour out of our mouths all the while just destroying the spiritual health and vitality of Christ's church one sentence at a time. Church, what we say to one another, especially in these cases, can be a matter of spiritual life or death. If we don't respect the power of our words, it can easily ruin any church, including our church. It happens all the time. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. This is the point in the sermon where in light of all this wisdom we've read about, as we reflect sort of and turn to our own lives, it may be hard to see past all of the foolishness. This might be what rises to the surface for us. Uh, too often, we don't choose our words very carefully. Uh, we don't use them for the good of others, and it's often because we, we don't really respect their power. For that reason, it can be tempting to just give up on words altogether, just shut our mouths and avoid all the deadly power of the tongue at all costs. And there may be, again, some wisdom in trying to say less. That may be a good thing. However, life is in the power of the tongue as well. The tongue of the wise can bring healing too. It is by the power of the tongue, frankly, that we can share the glory of the gospel with our friends. And some of them may even be resurrected to new eternal life. So thankfully, when we lack the wisdom to honor God with our words, we can strive after a whole different kind of wisdom that comes from outside of us. Church, thankfully, the word of this living God has taken on flesh Thankfully, that human word used his words perfectly to bring us life and healing. And when we, like the fools we are, beat him and nailed him to a cross, the scriptures tell us, like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. Think of all that he could have said. Imagine the restraint. He didn't say, okay, if you want to murder the sinless son of God, all right. No. He chose his words carefully. He used them for our good, even at great cost to himself. And church, he did this so that in him we can discover all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so let's confess the foolishness of our mouths and words. Let's rely on Christ to deliver us from that foolishness. And let's ask him by the power of his spirit to live through us by faith so that our words can honor God in the way he intended.